Welcome to the Outdoor Feast by Modern Carnivore. If you're new to hunting, fishing, or foraging, we welcome you to the conversation. Get ready for stories and insights that start in the Northeast, but range to the South, Far West, and wide open spaces in between. Now, here's your host, Todd Waldron. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Outdoor Feast. Thanks for joining us this week. Todd here. I am thrilled to be talking with Nicole Qualtieri this week on the podcast. Nicole is the hunting and fishing editor for Gear Junkie. She's based in Montana, and uh, it's an absolute thrill to have her on the podcast. We're talking a lot about how to look at outdoor opportunities and, and community in these strange times that we're dealing with right now. So when we're dealing with social distancing and we're dealing with just trying to keep people healthy and keep people safe, uh, we're talking a lot about how to stay connected and Nicole's tips for being able to stay connected and find your lane when it comes to learning how to hunt and fish and be in the outdoors. Uh, we're just also talking about conservation funding and what kind of uh, implications there are right now in the current times. Some tips for some perspectives on how to look at that kind of through a humanistic perspective in terms of just having empathy for our friends and neighbors who are struggling, who may be out of work, who may be sick, you know, so how to prioritize, how to think about conservation, how to think about the outdoors kind of in terms of that. So check out Nicole at Gear Junkie. She's got an incredible array of writing and blogs that um, that I think you'll like. There's There's a bunch of information on Gear Junkie that she's written up on just shortening your learning curve for the community. And, um, you know, she's done everything recently from tying flies on Facebook with some Orvis folks to a little bit some tips on elk hunting to watching nature retake Yosemite National Park without crowds. You know, she's also an advocate for trying to keep people safe and healthy during these times. And she's writing a lot of good content. Um, you know, for instance, she's got one from March 25th called, Is It Still Safe For Me To Go Outside? our best guidance now. So that's all over at gearjunkie.com. Give her a follow. You can find her on Instagram at at nkqualtieri. And uh, hope you enjoy this conversation. Also hope um, that you had the opportunity to sit in on one of the turkey hunting seminars that Mark Norquist at Modern Carnivore um, did in collaboration with uh, BHA Minnesota's university chapter, Mark Strand, Ray I., I've, I've sat down and watched both of those seminars that came out recently on turkey hunting, and they were both incredible. So if you haven't checked those out, uh, go over to modcarn.com and get connected with Hunting Camp Live. It's a new platform that Mark's been working on to provide this great hunting content to you with that community. And just let us know what you think. So without further ado, here's a conversation with my friend, Nicole Qualtieri. Thanks for joining us. Nicole, really glad to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. You just wrote an article. I just saw that you put an article out called Hunting and Angling Offers Respite for Many Tenuous Moments. Um, it's really timely. It was last week, I think. Um, we're smack mm -hmm. in the middle of this COVID-19 situation. Um, how is social distancing and life going for you right now? Well, I, I guess I'm a natural social distancer, which, which is sort of funny because uh, I would say I'm an introverted extrovert, you know? Um, I love being in big communities, people meeting people, networking, but then, you know, it is really draining. So I will definitely go um, 
rogue and kind of be on my own for a while and balance my life that way. But at the moment, I actually had knee surgery in at the end of January, on January 29th. Um, and so I've actually been holed up for like two months now. So it's a, I would say that it's a little overwhelming at this point. Um, but it's I'm I would also say that I'm bolstered by the positive side of humanity that I think is coming out as um, it's pretty rare that the planet has to endure something together. And um, I found that like really taking an optimistic viewpoint is as helpful in this moment. So um, just trying to do that where I can. And maybe it's easier in small town Montana to do that. Um, you know, we're not we're certainly not as under as much pressure as a lot of urban communities. Um, but you know, it is it's it's certainly within my community and it's something that I'm thinking about every day. Um, as I'm not only like navigating my personal life, but you know, the the professional side of writing where I want to be able to share positive stories and share stories that are really adequately researched and um, give people outlets to, you know, lean into the positives rather than the social panic and moral policing that yeah. I'm seeing right now. Yeah, it's it's a really, it's so true. And, um, you know, it is reassuring to see some of the positive responses, um, you know, that have come out of this. I mean, it's such a, it's a crazy generational adversity, you know, and that it's something that just happened out of nowhere. But like we're seeing, like just as far, I live in a small community as well. I'm in New York, which is where this COVID-19 situation is is really intense. And, um, but I'm up in the mountains and just seeing the community come together um, in general with donations for, you know, for food and helping small businesses. And then um, also like my outdoor friends, I'm seeing a lot of love on social people putting together things um, just to try to keep people engaged. And I think that that is, I think that that's a positive that comes out of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wrote the hunting and angling piece specifically because I was really seeing a trend there uh, that didn't really exist in any of the other communities that I belong to. And um, I think it's worth saying that I've only, this is my sixth year being a hunter and really, uh, you know, I grew up fishing a little bit, but um, I've been fly fishing for four years, three years now. So I, I'm not a diehard lifer by any means. Um, so I, like you were saying about gear junkie, um, I think that I sort of reflect what we do on that site as, you know, um, I have always been involved in some sort of outdoor recreation or sports, but hunting and fishing is still, um, it's definitely a huge part of what I do professionally, but, you know, um, personally, I, I would say that it's a fraction of, you know, who I've been over the course of my life. So, mm -hmm. um, seeing hunters and anglers really talking about how, you know, social distancing is sort of a natural part of what we do, um, Nobody really likes to go hunting or fishing in a crowded area. And it also provides us with the sustainable meat that, you know, we all have in our freezers, hopefully. Um, and then, you know, fishing is something that is really easy for people to learn. So you see hunters and anglers not only talking about hunting and angling in kind of a different way, but um, I've had many people that have offered to share their meat with 
people who might be less fortunate or in a difficult situation. Um, and you're seeing people that uh, are giving out resources on, you know, how to fish or, you know, just kind of offering help to anyone who might need to use natural resources to fill the freezer or fridge. Yeah, yeah, that's I, I've seen a lot of that, too, and it's encouraging. And I think that, you know, for everybody that loves the outdoors, your point about hunting and fishing being kind of one part of like a much broader lifestyle is um, I think that so many of us can relate to that. And so many of the listeners can relate to that because like, yes, we hunt and fish and, and we enjoy that and, and we have connections to our food, but we do a lot of other things as well, right? We're outdoors, yeah, we're, yeah, we're hiking, you're, you're horseback riding and doing a lot of different stuff. And so you have on the one hand, I think the broader outdoor community can kind of embrace the outdoors for respite during these kinds of times when they have access to it in responsible ways. And then, you know, for the hunters and anglers in that crowd, there's that extra level of the food connection and the food security and the sharing and all of that. So I think that they there's a lot of stuff that as outdoor enthusiasts in general, we share. And then it's really cool to see hunters and anglers stepping up um, to just be so generous with their food and with their background and knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I find it to be really heartening, you know, in a moment that can be very disheartening. So yeah, I mean, if I can shine a light on that, we have some other articles planned, you know, where we're gonna do like five books for the beginning hunter angler. So um, being able to put out content like that, you know, um, like I've recommended to everyone to get a Kindle, because at this point, <laughs> you know, a Kindle is the fastest way to get a book. Um, and I've been talking about the like, I, I'm like a diehard Kindler. And actually, Steve Ranella was the one who inspired me there because I was, you know, I was one of those people that was really like, oh, I want, you know, the feeling of a real book. And I like having my library. And, um, you know, and Steve was like, yeah, but you can have 10,000 books in your backpack, you know, <laughs> at, <laughs> at all times. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And for your listeners, I worked, I got my start in the industry. Um, well, I guess I got my start in the industry sewing backpacks at Mystery Ranch, which not many people know. Um, but I worked on Meat Eater for two years. Um, and I worked at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers for um, really like a year and a half on the social media side. So, yeah, I haven't had a terrible trajectory in this industry. And uh, and Gear Junkie has been the best of all worlds for me. And um, I'm, I'm, one, very grateful to have a job right now and, two, incredibly grateful to make a living um, – you know, doing what I love, which is writing and, you know, talking with people. So it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun and you're great at it. It's really cool. Oh, thank I, you. you know, <laughs> and I think the, uh, you know, your point about technology and the Kindle in general. So I just started um, reading a lot of ebooks as well, like in, and with the Kindle and just really hopping onto that train. And that's only been about six months. And I love it now, by the way. And I probably, I don't know, have 25 or 30 books on it. It's great. Um, I, I tend to like the feel and smell of real books. But once you grasp that and you have that technology, uh, you, you don't want to go back. But, you know, what's really cool about, you know, we're talking about the positives about, you know, community spirit and people in the outdoors um, during this time. And I think also one thing I'm seeing is, is like, you know, of course, we have technology and we, we use it regularly in our lives. But. Um, you know, just there's a lot of stuff going on now. I think that there's an opportunity to just connect more virtually so that like when we come out of this on the other end, 
you will have some great some great resources uh, to carry with us. What do you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I see relationships as the primary resource for everyone, you know, and I think, you know, I like there are a lot of memes, especially prior to coronavirus that, you know, we're all about people sort of staying home and not socializing. And I think um, I think there's like I think it's a double edged sword with social media. You know, we can use it as escapism or we can use it as connection. Um, and I I tend to really hammer into the latter as I've I've really like found my like hunting community through social media and uh you know that certainly stemmed from a professional career in social media I mean that was really where my focus was for four years so um, learning how to build communities through positive interactions through you know managing you know the terrible interactions and moderating people you know, there was nothing more powerful in my mediator days than personally messaging someone and signing it as Steve, you know, <laughs> which I did all the time. <laughs> so, um, you, you like wouldn't believe um, the response that I would get from people who were being um, jerks online Yep. when I would tell them, you know, calm down and sign it as Steve, um, which I did a lot. So that's, that's um, the best, Nicole. That's so isn't funny. That funny? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's great too, because um, I currently work for another writer, you, you know, Stephen Reginald owns Gear Junkie. So um, I'm either working for someone named Steve or Land at this point, I guess. So it's pretty funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I see social media as like a great connector of people and um, I think if you take that view, um, you're able to cultivate a community that is supportive and, you know, it's between um, FaceTime and phone calls and Skype and Zoom and Slack. I mean, I usually feel really overwhelmed by all of those different avenues of connection. You know, I'd certainly prefer to be able to meet with people in person. But, you know, in this moment, I've really found a lot of comfort in those spaces. And so I think um, when we change our mindset around things, you know, you see people really leaning out of that sort of like disconnective state and into one that might be virtual, but I think is still as honest as it ever was, you know. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree. And I think that while there's ups and downs with social media and you see all the different aspects of it, I think in terms of being able to stay connected to your community, to be able to find that community and stay connected in tough times like this, I think it's 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 like a lifeline for me. Like just yeah, being able too. to yeah, just being able to like reach out to a friend and you know, chat for a few minutes. Um, I think it's it's really important. So you, you were just talking earlier about some of your upcoming articles, Nicole, about um, getting started with hunting as an adult, right? That things, yeah, some of the yeah. content that's going to be coming out um, with Gear Junkie. And you've done so much great mentorship with Women's Hunting Camp in Montana. Um, you want to talk a little bit just about your perspective on adults that want to start hunting, how they find community, and just like how we can strengthen hunter recruitment programs? Yeah, it's an interesting time to be a hunter. I think, like I said, social media has provided us an inroad to creating community. And I think with the hunting and angling community, especially, we have like, we're in a really unique moment where, you know, people that might not have been able to find their demographic within the hunting community easily can at this point, you know, so generally, like, uh, the advice that I give to newer hunters is, 
really around like joining backcountry hunters and anglers and getting involved in your local community because I feel like that community um, is really an active community when it comes to the grassroots folks on the ground. Um, for me, I feel like mentorship programs have a downside. And that downside is that when you're part of a program, um, mentorship can become work rather than a communal relationship. So I think that your best bet as a new hunter is really to find an inroad into a community that will support you rather than trying a one-on-one -on -one mentorship type program. Because I think, I don't know, I, I, I don't know if I'm making much sense, but I think that, you're making that, like, a, yeah, you're making a lot of sense to me because like what I hear about that is like the community is finding, finding the community that resonates with you. And like, and, and, you know, in New York here, for instance, we've had a lot of events through BHA in and around New York City and not only New York City, but all throughout the Northeast, all throughout New York, from Buffalo up to the Adirondacks and et cetera. But there is so much energy. It, it's so every time we've done an event, Nicole, in like Brooklyn, say, or we did a pint night in Manhattan last year, and there's always like 70 or 80 people showing up. And then you know, they, you know, I, I talked to so many people through those kinds of networking events where they start hunting together and I'm like, oh, oh, how long have you known each other? And, you know, I'm thinking that they've known each other for years and it's like, oh, well, we met at the, the Brooklyn Pint Night or we met through, yeah, you know, the, the Ronde, you know, that's exactly how I met my hunting partners. Um, and, and I was lucky being a part of the meat eater crew. I mean, Giannis Patelis took me on my first hunt, you know, so Mm -hmm. Um, and we weren't successful, but I learned a lot. Um, so I think that there are like the people that will certainly take you under their wings, like on an informational basis or mentoring you through one or two hunts. Um, and there, then there are all these great educational events where you can, you know, I know that, um, modern carnivore has done these before where they'll break down a deer with people or, or something similar, you know, where people can go and learn some of the hands-on things that can be really hard to figure out on your own mm -hmm. um but at the end of the day it's going to be like you're going to want to go hunting with friends you know mm -hmm. um and certainly you can go out with a mentor one two or, or three times but um in the long run it's more fun to really i think that like what retains people isn't hunting per se i think it's the community around it and the friends that you develop and you know having those events like my deer camp that I hold each year to look forward to. And, and that was not born out of wanting to be a mentor. <laughs> so, um, I will say that, uh, you know, like when, when I first started that camp, it was, uh, 2019 and I'd only been hunting for, you know, that would have been my fourth season hunting. So like, I didn't see myself as a mentor at all. Um, I really just wanted to hunt with women. Um, and it was probably more selfish than anything else. And the quick story there is that I put out an Instagram post in, or I guess it's 2018, just asking if any women wanted to hunt. And I ended up having 50 women reach out to me, which was way more than I expected. Wow. Um, and it became something that I'd never intended it to become. Um, and that's totally fine. Um, but yeah, it's certainly, it's very interesting to come to a camp every year that you don't know who's going to be there. So it's, I mean, um, 
you know, we get a sense of who's coming. Um, people like pay 50 bucks. We buy a bunch of food. We get gifts for everyone. Um, but the majority of the people that come are strangers or, um, you know, alumni. So, yeah, it's a generally open camp. And we have people that come from all over the country. And the first year we had 18 women in the crazy mountains hunting elk and deer. And the second year um, we had 23 women in eastern Montana hunting pronghorn and deer. So, um, and I think this year we have some bird hunters coming. We're going to stay in eastern Montana. So, yeah, it's really kind of a uh, free-for-all. It's certainly not an educational hunt by intention. Um, it's an educational hunt by experience. And um, there's no hand-holding. You know, it's really a casual camp for anyone who wants to come and hunt. And, you, and you know, we had women that came this year and just hunted by themselves, you know, and just came back to camp for, like, the social aspect. So, yeah, uh, I think a lot of people, like, have sort of an outside look uh, as to what it is and um i i see it as like a happy accident more than anything yes yeah. and, and uh, <laughs> so many of those happy accidents that happen that way and then they turn out to be great things i mean it says a lot about the appetite for this kind of community when you put out a, a, a post and 50 people respond right so you know that's encouraging i mean you, you get the idea that there's a, there's a desire, there's an appetite to have these kinds of communities. And then like what I, I like about that is like your point, and this kind of goes back to like the community aspect of, you know, the conversation about having a hunting community and then like being on a one-on-one -on -one mentor. But like, mm -hmm. I, I think that this is like an inspirational thing for people. Like I've talked to our mutual friend, Cindy Stites about this, you know, about coming mm -hmm. out to your camp and about how much she looks forward to it. And she's told stories about the travel and like the incredible community of women that you've got there at camp and like the hunting and like, and that spills over. And then like my friend, I know like my friend, Crystal Whiteman here in New York is also like talking about it. And she's like thinking, boy, she'd like to come out at some point or, or well, maybe she bought her tag. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild, you know, um, I think, like, for me, it was really hard to open my doors to strangers, you know, like, as much as I'm an extrovert, like spending, I've spent days in the woods with people who I thought were my good friends. And then you come out of the woods and you're like, well, uh, so much for that. Um, yeah, that, that so, will sort things out quickly. <laughs> it sorts things out really quickly. So um, I... You know, I was certainly nervous to go into the woods for four days with that many women, but um, it couldn't have been a more positive experience both times. And um, it's still a huge emotional overhaul for me to sort of gird, gird myself for it. At one point, I was like, maybe I should do two camps. And then I was like, I just I don't have like the emotional capacity. <laughs> so like, but but like at the end of the day, like I like those women are amazing. Um, and I feel really lucky to have that community. I mean, now I have women I can hunt with all over the country, you know, and Cindy, I mean, she's a huge inspiration to me for a lot of reasons. And, you know, her story of, you know, never really traveling by herself and like really, you know, um, I don't know, she's gone through a lot in her life. And yeah. when you see someone else who's making that emotional leap, it's inspirational for, you know, for me to do the same. So to see something that's that transformational for women that is, you know, really based on just like three words, which is come and hunt, you know, um, that's really changed my perspective on a lot of things. And, and, you know, one thing that I'd love to see is something similar 
I think that there are a lot of men that want to get into hunting, but can feel like they don't have that same sort of outlet or people, you know, in legitimately marginalized communities within hunting that don't think that they have that outlet. Um, I know I have a few friends that are starting a camp in the LGBTQ world, sort of based on the idea that um, our deer camp was started on. So uh, my my thing that if for people is that if you're open to welcoming new hunters into um, you know, this lifestyle, then I think you should also be o- willing to open your doors, you know, outside of your traditional group, which, of course, feels scary. But I think for the most part, at the end of the day, like, um, you'll either have an experience where you're gaining new friends, or at least helping someone learn more about what we do as hunters and anglers. And yeah. I don't know that there's a downside to that, you know. I, I don't think there's a downside at all. And I wholeheartedly agree about providing um, gateways and entry points for for access to community, right? To be in a community. So whether, regardless of your background and regardless of where you came from and your preferences, your lifestyle, like if, if you're interested in learning how to hunt and fish and, and you want to learn about conservation and you want to find a community. I, I just, I see so much upside to that. And I think not only from the personal relationships that you can build and helping people with their lifestyle, but also in my opinion, I think it's, it's going to help us make better conservation decisions for the land when we have broader opinions, you know, the, the bigger spectrum yeah, we can get of backgrounds. Yeah. Like community members. And, you know, because I think that you know, the strength of decision-making and the strength of policy is in, in voices, right? And so, you know, when we, I think sometimes like hunting and angling, we can be somewhat monolithic in terms of just like uniform and like we have our voice and we're doing a lot of stuff, but do we really reflect society? If you looked at the fabric of society, um, we're, we're a part of it. We're an important part of it in terms of what we do. But, um, you know, we're certainly there's a lot more diversity out there in society. So in terms of being able to bring people of different backgrounds into hunting and fishing that want to connect through that, I think it's just hugely, hugely important. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it has to really be personal. You know, I think um, I think we can do as much as we want to with something like an R3 program. But um, at the end of the day, it's still a little bit less intimidating to go hang out with someone who's invited you to do something than it is to, you know, um, go to an event where you may not know anyone. Um, so I, I just really encourage people to take a chance. Um, you know, if I can do it, anybody can. Um, and I, like I said, I certainly don't see myself as a mentor, but um, if I can provide some of like the... <laughs> the glue that's going to hold this thing together through friendship and open community, then I'm going to continue to do that. And um, what that looks like for me is, you know, the open deer camp we hold once a year. So, yep. um, and it's, and it's really is a team effort, you know, um, Cindy has taken on like a lot of the sort of helping the out of state folks figure out how to get there and overcome emotional boundaries. Um, my friend, Laura Farron, um, does a lot of the organizational stuff. She's like an amazing type A uh, organizer, which I am not. So, um, yeah, I'm certainly not alone in in what I'm doing. And it's amazing to see what people bring to the table. Um, 
and sort of the natural groups that form. I mean, we have women that hunt together in Washington. You know, other women have started their own camps there. I think there have been like three or four camps just based on the idea of the camp that we started um, in the past two years. So to me, that's really heartening. And I'd love to see um, like some of my guy friends and other folks in this world do something similar, because I think there's, you know, if there's a need for it that badly within women, then there's a need for it that badly across uh, the entire demographic. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. And I love I kind of love where this conversation is going. And sometimes it's funny. I don't know where things are like. So here's here's what I love about this is like thinking in terms of, you know, when we talk about mentorship, like we, we think of like structured programs with like one on one kind of engagement and interfacing um, with new hunters. But like this is a really kind of cool conversation about the power of like community in terms of being the glue that keeps things together. So like the the other thing is, is that I think when it comes to new hunters is that, you know, it's not like a static process. Like as, as you learn, it's, it's, a, it's a long process and it's fluid. And I think if you have a community around you that supports you and, and you have numerous friends um, that are doing different things, right, that have like different perspectives and a wide range of interests, I think that that can only help you over time, I think it balances people out and maybe just gives them the encouragement to stay involved, you know, and, and also doesn't put the pressure on an individual to to be a mentor. Well, no. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think the other side of that is that when you're exposed to a lot of different people in a personal setting, people tell stories. And I think that, like, really, that's where we learn, you know, and, you know, I couldn't have had like a better mentor in that than Steve and the Meat Eater crew, I mean, the way that they've been able to infiltrate like the public conscious when it comes to hunting uh, has really been unprecedented, you know? So I, I think that like when, when we're thinking about the ways that people learn those interpersonal stories, you know, of, especially of things that go wrong um, are probably more important to the hunting community than anything else. I know that like my first kill was pretty awful. And, you know, a lot of that just has to do with, you know, at some point you have to pull the trigger and it's not going to be perfect. And, and I got a lot of education that day. Um, but I also got, you know, a, a freezer full of meat. So I think that it's important to let people know that it's can certainly be an emotional haul and that, you know, it is inherently violent. And I think that if we're honest about having that conversation with people, then it's a lot less shocking in the moment as new hunters really come to grips with what it means to take a life and what it means to put meat on the table. Um, that was certainly a really, um, that was a really big conundrum for me. So um, I can empathize with anyone who's worried about that or has gone through something similar. And it's been a really important part of my evolution as just a human. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I, th I think that a lot of times we really paint a rosy picture, not out of intention um, as much as like the majority of people that are talking about hunting um, in a public facing view are expert hunters or lifelong hunters. And, you know, a lot of times when I talk to those folks, uh, you know, their initial hunting stories of like the first year they killed when they were 12 aren't so great. 
mm -hmm. then you have people like me who we experienced that at 31 and man, like that's a huge shock. So, mm -hmm. um, and we don't necessarily have parents around who know what they're doing to, to help us in those moments, you know? So yeah. I think it's important to really pay attention to the emotional needs of new hunters as well, and really be honest about, you know, what we do and what it entails. Yeah, I, I agree so much on that. And I think that, I mean, we could have a whole conversation just on storytelling and communication. I think as hunters and anglers, we're, we've kind of evolved as a community in, in terms of like communicating with hunter, other hunters and anglers. Like when I look at social, when I look at the stories that, a, a, you know, a, a lot of uh, people like myself maybe, you know, are used to telling, it's like we're better at communicating to our friends um, that have that context than we are about communicating with people who are new to that experience, you know, and just, I think that like, there's so much benefit in coming into it as an adult in terms of mindfulness. Um, and I think that that's one thing that it took me a long time. Like my, I'll give you a, for instance, like my conservation mindfulness kind of evolved over time, but I was well into my thirties by the time that that happened. But, you know, I had the immersion as a child with being out in the woods with my grandfather and dad. And that's like a traditional kind of trajectory for many people, but that's not how a lot of people are coming in to hunting and fishing. You know, you need to be mindful of perspective and backgrounds and, you know, being able to just, you know, what do you think it is? Like you stress the importance of honest communication. Like, what do you think the barriers are to that? Like, why is it that we paint this rosy picture? What What's your opinion on it? Um, I think it's just human nature. I think like generally, like, I think that the best stories come from struggle, you know, but I also think that like, a lot of times we don't want to illuminate the struggle because we want to save face, or like, we haven't taken the time to process those struggles on our own. I mean, like, I know someone who killed a nice elk. Um, but he definitely didn't say that he took six bullets to put it down. And I, you know, I think there can be a lot of shaming within a community that expects ethical perfection, even in the midst of unknowable circumstances. Mm -hmm. So I think that like, that's one thing that um, I don't expect people to like get on social media or, you know, write a public facing article about all the mistakes that they made. Mm -hmm. But I think that like, when we're dealing with new hunters, or when we're dealing with the public, um, I think it's important to take that into context because I don't mean this to sound trite, but like people aren't stupid. Like they know that you're shooting an animal, right? Mm -hmm. And yep. and it's inherent within that that things can go wrong. And I think that like when you see a lot of pushback, I think it can be become, sort of become like, you know, um, two defensive sides. Mm -hmm. And I think there there are ways to have constructive conversations about violence within hunting and i don't necessarily have like a perfect instance or example of that but i just think it's something to pay attention to and i think it's something to like really honor i know that i uh do my best to do that you know especially when i'm able to write something that's a little more literary i got to be the guest editor-in-chief for the most recent um issue of Modern Huntsman. And it was really cool to see how um, women particularly, which that issue is about, addressed that within their own words. And perhaps like, 
we're able to do it a little bit more um, because we might not feel as much need to save face as, mm-hmm. you know, culture has dictated for men. So I don't want to make any like really broad strokes. I think I think there are a lot of people that tell amazing stories. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people that do it really responsibly. Um, but I don't know. It, it's just something that's always top of mind for me, because when I came into hunting, um, uh, that was really the thought thought that I had was, am I going to be able to pull the trigger? And then what do I do after I pull the trigger? And the reality in that first moment was that I was in shock, like so entirely that I didn't really know what to do. (laughs) So it it was a, it was a good learning experience in in that way. Um, And I've still like, I mean, so I guess I'm guilty of it. Like I've tried to write about that story a lot. And I haven't ever found, you know, the right words that I felt comfortable talking about, you know. So I also don't think that people need to be like doing a confessional either, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that like there's a tendency for people to get really sort of like, oh, here's this secret or here's this confession. Yeah. Um, but I think that like, oh, like these well-rounded stories that can encompass all these things are where people can empathize in the moment. And um, I think empathy is really important in hunting. Empathy for each other, empathy for the animal, all those things like really play deeply into who I think of as being a responsible hunter and communicator within our world. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love this conversation. Like this is the kind of stuff I'm really excited to talk about and and hear your perspective on Nicole. So thanks for sharing that. You know, one yeah, thing, no uh, you know, one thing I've been really um, drawn to lately, this is kind of a side, maybe a little bit of a tangent, but it's, it's related to powerful storytelling and authenticity and honesty. And um, have you ever heard of uh, Margot Lightman? She's like a moth storyteller. She's written some books on like she wrote this one book called, Long story short, um, have you, is, does that name ring a bell? I've, or? I've heard of the moth. I used to listen to the moth like all the time. Um, so I've probably heard a story from her at some point, but it's been a long time. I need to get it back on my radar. So she, yeah, so she she you know she doesn't it, her stories are general life stories, but she is an incredible storyteller. And so she she has a couple of books out, and she does some workshops on just helping people tell their stories. And while it's not necessarily outdoor related those those books are so so helpful i've been reading a lot of that and listening to some of her stories and she was like a five-time moth storytelling champion she's just i think she's yeah i think she's from new jersey and like it's kind of funny because it sent me down this rabbit hole i started reading this um writer named uh jonathan ames who's from new york city and this is like adult reading and and like not at all related to Hunting yeah, I've heard, of, I've heard his name. Yeah, the, for sure. Yeah. The guy is an incredible storyteller and he is like his pace and his ability to frame stories and his honesty are just phenomenal. Um, so I've just that's what I've been up to this winter is like I've got I down that, that rabbit hole of of reading like what I consider really good, honest writers. It's pretty cool. Well, yeah. So from 2009 until really like 2012. Uh, this is prior to me being a hunter and angler. Um, I was really involved in the stand-up comedy scene in Denver, and then I started doing um, storytelling events. So I feel like I learned so much about uh, writing through 
um, comedic writing because it's all really about brevity. Um, but then I really got to get in front of audiences and tell full scope stories. Um, and that was a really incredible education in um, what I do now, you know. So it's funny, like I won't realize something or I'll send something to my mom to read. And she's like, oh, like you use your comedy writing in this, even though it's a serious <laughs> story. So it's and, you know, the fun thing about Gear Junkie is that I can still be silly and irreverent, you know, and have a lot of fun writing one story and then, you know, go to another one and really be really serious and dig in. So, yeah, yeah it's nice to have a little bit of leeway to um, both make fun of hunters and anglers and um, hold their feet to the fire every once in a while. Yeah, I love that. So I did. That's something I didn't know about you in terms of your background. So that's that's so cool. Yeah, um, thanks. It was a lot yeah. of fun. I, I'm still really close to a lot of people in that community. And anytime I go down to Denver, I try to see them. And and yeah, they, they give me a lot of shit for, you know, being a gun owner and being a hunter now. But uh, it's it's really funny. And I, I still just adore that whole side of things. And I think that like, if anyone wants to um, perfect their writing, trying to write jokes and then standing up in front of people and saying them, is a is a really quick way to uh, improve your writing. <laughs> so if you have the opportunity, I recommend doing it. So that's that's from firsthand experience. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There's yep. there's nothing like bombing um, in a full bar. So yeah, yep. it's a yep. it's a very humbling experience. Oh, uh, that's so cool. I love it. Um, so, what do you think? You wrote an article about. I'm going back to hunting and conservation here and bouncing yeah, around yeah. a little bit, but. You wrote an article recently about um, the American Outdoors Act, the Great American Outdoors Act. And, you know, a lot of us have been working on permanent funding for land and water conservation fund. And I feel like we're so darn close to getting that moving <laughs> forward. And now, like, the, maybe <laughs> that, that's exactly where I'm going. And so, like, yeah, like yeah. we are so close to that. And then the world changes. So, like, do you have any kind of pulse or sense personally on what that, how um, that might shape out? So I've been putting off uh, the inevitable phone call to my old boss, Katie McCaleb at BHA, yeah. uh, because I don't want to know what's happening for the sake of my, well, it's probably selfish. I probably should just call her. But yeah, I mean, what happens when you're trying to pass a multi-billion dollar public lands deal when, you know, the country is in the midst of a pandemic? The timing couldn't have been worse. Um, I'm not sure how this changes things. Like, what does this mean for the upcoming election? There are so many different uh, rabbit holes that I go down when I think about it. But um, yeah, I'm really disappointed. It looked like it was going to move really quickly. And we're kind of back to same old politics in Washington, even in the midst of a crisis. So that's my answer for you is I don't know. And um, I don't, part of me doesn't want to know. And, you know, as a journalist, I'm going to have to dig into that probably within the next week or so. But, yep. um, you know, it's, it yeah. doesn't look great. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't look great, and I I feel similarly. Like I just it, there's so much uncertainty with it. I just feel like you're. You know, I feel similar to you in the sense that who knows what's going to happen. It's what's interesting is like a similar kind of situation on a state level here in New York. Uh, the governor's has been trying to push a three billion dollar bond act, and so the bond act is like you know something that comes out. The last one was in 1996. And this one was shaped to set up to provide a lot of like restorative work for wetlands, for shorelines, habitat, yeah. habitat, climate change. 
And so, you know, at this point in the game, it's like, who, who knows how that would be sold? Like, I guess it, to some extent it might, you know, it might be interesting to see how things, how the message is framed and how, what can get slipped into broader, you know, conversations about public health and safety, because like, I think there is that aspect of like with land and water conservation fund and green space and open spaces and parks that there's certainly, yes, there are conservation issues and environmental issues, but they can also be framed as public health issues to giving people access to open space and, and, you know, from that angle. So yeah, just be yeah. interesting I think, how it I gets think that framed. when you have a bunch of people that can't pay their rent and might not be able to get food, it's, um, yep. I know that it's a serious ethical conundrum for me to want to push people towards the land and water conservation fund. I, you know, I'd rather like see my friends who are like bartenders and in the service industry be able to pay their bills for the next three months, you know? Yeah. So like, oh. I, I, I like, I take a probably a humanistic approach to this and I, and I certainly can angle my thinking to um, include public lands and waters into that. Like certainly clean waters should be at the top of all of our minds right now. But um, but, but those are somewhat loftier yeah, than, than the immediate need, right? And I'm it so is, glad yeah. to hear you say that because like it's something I've been struggling with for the last couple of weeks is like, you know, I've backed off some of my outdoor social posting because I felt a little bit, I don't know if guilty is the word, but just like, I, I felt like more mindful and like, uh, just a little, like my mind hasn't been on that. You know, my mind is on friends that are losing jobs and, you know, business yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, I think that that's like, um, you know, that gets back to empathy. Like mm-hmm. if you're a naturally empathetic person, you know, I made, <laughs> I worked three jobs to put myself through school and you know two of those jobs were service industry jobs and you know and i graduated college in 2008 at the in the midst of an economic recession and had to bartend until i found a job so when you think of people that are just in those circumstances or freelancers or you know even our medical community who might not be able to go home like i i feel like there's there's a lot more to I hate to say that we need to set conservation down for a minute, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I personally, we have to take care of feel each that other way. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. have to take care yep. of each other. Um, mm-hmm. and that certainly doesn't mean that like it's, it becomes a free for all on our natural resources. You know, mm-hmm. should that be the case, then I'll be the first one in line, you know, standing up for those resources. So, but I haven't seen anything of that nature at this point. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think that it's, important to understand the human aspect of the moment and i but i also think it's okay to grieve that you know we were so close um (laughs) (laughs) and that i think that there's also like the positive side you know you're seeing like air emissions are going way down over the the globe right now um you know habitat is (laughs) really being left alone at the moment um a friend sent me something uh there there was like a flock of wild turkeys just hanging out in downtown bozeman um you know (laughs) which i've never seen in in the five years that i lived there um and then uh there are dolphins that are in the waterways of venice right now that are Mm -hmm. usually not there so it's it's i and i think that like chernobyl is a really interesting ecological uh place at the moment so it'll be interesting to see like nature really rebounds you know when we leave 
leave it alone. And um, so it'll be interesting to see like what the unintended consequences are, you know, both on a positive and uh, a negative side of what's happening right now. But it is it is curious to see those little things happening, like wild turkeys just chilling in downtown Bozeman. Yeah, it, it really speaks to just how resilient nature can be, you know, um, in terms of just being able to, if you give it a breather, you know, in terms of like how it might react or how it might adapt. But I mean, when it, the government shut down, um, they were seeing like black bears in places in Yosemite that they hadn't been seen before, you know. So I think, mm-hmm. I mean, there's also something to be said for kind of uh, everything getting a bit of a break from constant human interaction right now. And um, that's one thing that we've been really thinking about at Gear Junkie is like, how do we help people get out outside responsibly? You know, I've talked with people in Jackson Hole and people in Moab, where they're still seeing a ton of out-of-state tourists putting pressure on local businesses and really like endangering the local community because they're coming from urban spaces. So how do we tell people that you know, now's not the time to go visit a national park um, when you also have government officials, you know, waiving park fees for everyone. So, yeah. um, I I mean, I'd like to see the parks close. I think that there are plenty of public lands and even within your own neighborhood, there are spaces that you can socially distance responsibly at the moment. And, you know, and that could all change. So I, don't, I think that it's, it's hard not to uh, get overcome by anxiety and emotions right now, but it's also, you know, Hopefully it's a once in a lifetime thing and yep. we can all sort of um, build each other up and create some safe like harbors for each other in the moment. Yeah, uh, so, so true. And like I feel so here in the East, we're dealing with that very same conundrum about overuse and just like crowds. And I'll give you a specific example to the Adirondack Park, the Adirondack Mountains. And while it's not a federal national park and it's not a it's not federally owned it's a state protected park six million acres but there's this there's this situation where because of our proximity to new york and boston and hartford and new jersey like we have this incredibly wild landscape the wildest landscape in the east and then um it's getting love to death so to speak it's being completely overrun and so that's been a problem that's been kind of brewing for several years and you know trying to deal with the use factor and its impact on the landscape but now specifically in current events it becomes even more of a challenge um you know and we're dealing with that like the issues and the ethics of telling people to not come up here you know from new york city to not come up to their second homes or not to want to go out and recreate yeah i mean like much like jackson or moab like you guys are a gateway community Totally. So, you know, those those pressures change day to day life and, you know, put small communities at risk. And it's not yep. just the small communities within the gateway. It's the small communities that you travel through. It's tenuous. You know, it's it's difficult in <laughs> in a country that really values um, self-reliance and independence. It's it's going to it's going to be a little bit of a switch for a while. Like, you know, there are certainly like a lot of people that aren't buying into what they might call the nonsense of coronavirus um, and listening to just some of my friends. It's, it's actually very funny. Like um, I'm, I'm like an old millennial, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of my friends are dealing with their boomer parents who are like still trying to 
fly places and go out to dinner and they're like, oh, we've been through some things like this before, you know, and that sense of like old school resilience is um, not necessarily the safest one right now. <laughs> so, not, um, not no. Yeah. So it's really interesting to have those conversations and to hear how older generations uh, might not be taking it as seriously as uh, the younger generations, um, you know, or they're entirely fearful, you know, which can be really scary in an isolating moment, you know, so it's it's just, it's weird. It's unprecedented, um, it, I, at least in our lifetimes. I, I think so too. And I think there's a whole conversation around mental health around all of this too. Like, it'll be kind of interesting to see how, like just keeping people mentally resilient and healthy through these kinds of crises, you know, because we're, you're, you're, you know, when you have a situation where it's the, the stakes are so high and then you start, you know, the solitude and the isolation and all of that stuff. I think that there's just a, I think there'll be a lot of mental health issues that come out of it during these, you know, hard weeks. And like, I think that there's ways that, you know, the outdoors and just general in life, you know, like I'm, I'm trying to just stay healthy right now. And I've had to really put a, a stronger effort into trying to maintain some kind of emotional consistency, you know, um, trying yeah. to exercise a little more, trying to like pay a little more attention to my family, to my loved ones. And it's, um, it's pretty, it's scary stuff. It's hard to come through. You know, the, the funny thing is about the Adirondacks is you were talking about being like a, what'd you call it? An introverted extrovert? And yeah, or, yeah, was yeah. it an extroverted introvert? I don't remember. I but. don't know. I guess they're both the same thing. Well, yeah, I'm the same way. <laughs> I'm the same way. And like, it, like what's funny is uh, like I'm seeing the folks up here be like six feet, like no way. No, that's way too close. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, like we got to, yeah. you know, we need our space. But anyway. Um, I know six feet can be too close for a lot of people on a regular basis. So yeah, I think if you're an outdoors person, you know, I, it's honestly not a bad time to be an outdoors person. I I feel like with the the gear that I have and you know the the backpacking food that I I mean I could I could like theoretically be completely fine. You know, if gas runs out, I've got a horse with four legs. So yeah. all the preppers are like rejoicing right now and saying, "I told you so." But, yep. uh, you know, hopefully that won't have to go on for too much longer. But it's definitely um, it's just a funny it's an it's an odd time. I don't know. I um, I just hope that everyone out there is uh, staying safe and keeping themselves entertained. And if you're feeling sad or down, like reach out to people and um, make sure that you're keeping your social connections open, because I think that everyone needs it right now. You know, even people that don't think that they need it or, you know, people that might not be inclined to call people. I, I think that it's important to think about our friends that, you know, maybe we should be calling. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah. that's another side of it too. Yeah, it, it is another side of it too. You know, like, and this is another, this kind of a, a personal silver lining kind of thing. But um, one thing that's come out of this experience is that my dad, who is 70, he's going to be 76 this year, has taken to technology. And so we now like, FaceTime and text and message. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool, you know? So it's like just keeping in touch and checking in with each other and taking care of each other. And it doesn't have to be a 20-minute conversation. It can just be, you know, hey, I'm thinking of you. Um, yeah, kind of yeah, thing. absolutely. Yeah, is there anything um, that I 
I've missed, like anything you want to talk about or amplify, Nicole, that I didn't ask you or just like anything that you feel like that's on your mind right now that you think the community ought to hear? At the moment, you know, I just want people to know that like the like listen to medical experts really try to stay away from people who are either, you know, really pushing the sort of um, self-quarantine all the time <laughs> type of mentality. You know, unless you are actually sick or with someone who's sick, I think that it's important to get outside, even if it's just a walk around the block. Um, you know, they're saying that even with shelter in place mandates, they want people to go outside and recreate while social distancing. So um, I want people to be able to feel safe to take care of their mental health, too. And I know that was something we just talked about, but pay attention to the medical experts. Don't listen to the social media influencers and um, just um, figure out the small ways to stay sane. And um, and if we can help you do that at Gear Junkie, that's really our goal. Um, and I think there are a lot of other great media outlets doing similar things. So um, yeah. I hope that everyone's just staying safe and taking care of themselves, um, you know, physically, mentally and spiritually. I think it's like a pretty big, I think meeting those needs is probably more important than you know, teaching your kids math that you might not be good at. So yep. I think it's yep. probably a good time to like focus on the easier things than the more difficult ones. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And without going down the rabbit hole of teaching your kids math, you know, uh, we were talking <laughs> earlier about transition, you know, our daughter's um, elementary school grade and, you know, the transition, um, being empathetic toward that person um, and, and that kid and understanding like that they're going through some major transitions with being separated from their, you know, they're not in school. They don't have the routine. They don't have the structure. They're, they're not with their friends every single day. So I think what we've learned as parents through this whole process is to cut some slack and be supportive emotionally, you know, while maintaining the balance of also having some kind of routine and schedule to kind of keep some sideboards on a day to day basis. Um, but then the other stuff, you know, builds on off off of that. If if the kid's feeling eager or anxious because of life, or the parents are, then um, all the rest of the the you know the technical nuts and bolts of their lessons plans don't you know they're not going to really sink in anyway. So yeah, um, so my best friend has a thirteen year old daughter who I've known since she was six, and um, so like we were all talking today about like her building her own lesson plan and like just finding out what she wanted to learn about, you know, like there's, I think there's something cool about like the, I worked with kids for a long time. I don't have kids of my own. Um, but I think there's something really empowering about having some freedom and like really listening to like, what are your kids interests and like, where do they want to dig in for a little bit, you know, outside of their normal curriculum. And I think that that can be a really interesting road. So it's been fun to like still stay in close touch with Anna and, um, you know, see like what she wants to learn about. And then, you know, I have a four-year-old nephew who's learning how to, um, read and count and, um, I get to be a part of that too. So even like, even through distance, it's been fun to like kind of see what different people are doing and, um, you know, whether it's crafting or learning new things, um, or taking some time to like, even just, you know, give yourself some slack and have a glass of wine at the end of every day and, yep. you know, hopefully wake up knowing that we're one day closer to being together again. 
Yeah, for sure. That's all good stuff. And uh, I like the idea of like the involvement and in the ownership. Um, we're doing something similar. We have like a a calendar schedule on the wall that's kind of fabric. And there's, you know, these there's certain things, there's certain slots for here's when we do this, here's when we do that, here's when you can FaceTime. But there's like open windows of, you know, here, what do you want to do for these periods yeah, of time yeah. through the day? And that I think that that just builds some uh, some ownership there and, and some excitement about the day. So um, I ran hmm? summer programs for a long time, so I had to do a lot of that stuff with kids. Yeah, I really loved it. So like you, you have a wide ranging background, my friend. So like the, yeah, you keep yeah. telling me like, okay, I ran summer <laughs> camps, uh, you know, I, I wrote this <laughs> comic stuff and you know, I love it. The, the layers yeah. here, the layers. Well, great. I'm just, I can't, I'm not like a, a sit still kind of person. Um, and um, luckily I always had to have a job, you know, so I've had a job since uh, my first job was mucking horse stalls when I was 12 years old, and that's how I paid for my riding lessons. Um, and I've been an equestrian since then. So, um, you know, I think there's something to be said for being creative when you don't have much. Um, and that was certainly like how my parents raised me. And so, I don't know. I just, I kind of like to keep my options open. And, you know, sometimes that's a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing. <laughs> um, but, you know. Luckily, hunting and fishing has stuck around and so have horses and the outdoors. And yep. um, yeah, that's like that's where I get to plant myself. And yeah, I couldn't be more grateful for it. That's that's so cool. I'm so glad. Thanks for being on the podcast. And, oh, my uh, gosh. Yeah, such a pleasure. Um, Dan, thanks for talking through a weird time of anxiety. I know people are probably maybe getting a little bit over it, but, you know, I think we've still got a ways to go. So it's nice yep. to be able to do it all together. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love the conversation. So uh, let's go back to George Strait real quick and then we'll sign off. So what's, what's, <laughs> like, uh, so what's your favorite George Strait song, Nicole? I think it would have to be Blue Clear Sky. That like it's an oldie, but a goodie. And um, I don't know. I, George Strait is like a bomb for me. And I always find myself going back to it. And it, I guess it kind of reminds me. So that job that I had when I was 12 years old was it would have been um, like in the mid 90s and the barn like always had a country music station playing. So like 90s country music is like uh, my soul food and George Strait would be like the king of that world. So, yeah, I, I just I don't know. His his music is like just easy and kind. And, you know, it's um, I don't know. It harkens back to like a simpler time for me and uh, blue clear sky, oceanfront property. She'll leave you with a smile. Those are probably my top three songs. They're just, Those, they're so fun. That's a pretty good list. That's a pretty good list. I'm, I'm going to have to say, I like Amarillo by morning. Like, I, oh, like that's, yeah. yeah, that's a cool song. I like that song. And I, somewhere in my, my dining room, I've still got George Strait CDs, like greatest hits. And he's had so many greatest hits. There's like, I don't know how many volumes there are, but. Amarillo by Morning, uh, Baby Blue, you know, um, yeah. any any of those songs are, are great. So, okay. Um, a lesser known one would be uh, Easy Come, Easy Go. And that it would probably be a good theme song for what we have going on right now. So if you want to dig into one song to get you through the coronavirus, Easy Come, Easy Go is probably a good one. And th that's the best tip of the day. So there I you like go. that. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nicole. So... Thanks so much. I appreciate oh, it. Thank you. And let's keep in touch and keep yourself Please. safe and uh, hope your family's well and hope to see you again soon when this all shakes out at some point. Um, 
always good to catch up. Same. Um, and yeah, for all your listeners, stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to the Outdoor Feast podcast. You can check out our other podcast and more at modcarn.com.